we need to make all this money. We got to be financially secure and it'll just happen in a moment's notice when we're on to the right thing. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? In actuality, my indication of it, having lived it, is you not only have to be doing the right thing, you have to be super intentional and strategic about it. And then chances are it takes 10 years to make for an overnight success. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey everybody, welcome to the Dreamcatchers Podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and we're international today, ladies and gentlemen. We're up in Canada with my man, Brandon Lazar. I hope I got that right, brother. Did I say it right? right. Nailed it. Nailed it. Don't question it. Awesome, man. Monday, Monday, Monday. We're making it rock and roll. So, Brandon, you're here because you had an exit, brother, and it was pretty cool to hear you on Built to Sell, I think. And we know through our research, that founders go through a series of exits. For most of them, it starts with leaving corporate America and the end point, as you told me beforehand, there can never be an end for some folks and then others sell a portfolio and then they go do something else that doesn't involve building a business. And so I just want you, if you would be willing to, to just kind of dive in and let's talk about this exit. We know that's the end point. Let's go to the beginning. You started a company and then how we got to this place where you got out. For sure. Yeah, well, like I'm a lifetime entrepreneur. So literally I go back to when I was in kindergarten, I found some rocks in the playground and I tried to sell them to my teacher. Like that's how ingrained entrepreneurship is into my DNA. So all throughout high school and middle school, you know, I was selling chocolate bars out of my locker. I had a paintball field in my parents' backyard and it's kind of progressed accordingly, right? And then I got my business degree from a local college here. And when I was in my first year, I started two separate businesses in the same year. Uh, One was a fleet of lemonade and sunglass stands that would uh, attend really large special events like state fairs and anything outdoors. And then the second one, which I I recently just exited from, was an exterior cleaning business called A-plus gutter and window cleaning. Okay. So did you ever have a job? Let's start there. So- very, very briefly. I mean, you know, going through high school, I worked at Wendy's and, and fast food and stuff like that. And then very briefly, when I was in college, I did two years of wildland firefighting. And but even then, when I was out like on the helicopter or getting transported into some remote area to fight fire, I always had a notebook on me and I was always scribbling business ideas, even then. What in the world? So most people don't know what the firefighting thing is. And so were you actually on the ground on with hoses and like oh, cutting yeah. lines and in the forest? Like, let's talk about that because that's fascinating. If you can do that, yeah. you can do anything, by the way. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, you're, you're in the middle of nowhere. On a moment's notice, you ship out. You get there by either a helicopter, by airplane, or by truck. 
and it could be up to 14 days is a deployment and you're out of cell service likely. And sometimes you're literally just on a hill watching and just kind of serving as reconnaissance. Other times it's full on, you're running a pump, you're digging trench, you're spraying hose, whatever it takes, depending on what the fire is doing. What in the world? How did you get into that other than it pays well? Like that's yeah. some big boy stuff. It is. It is. And uh, yeah, basically in high school, they offered a very limited amount of spaces as like a high school initiative to ch try and like get people in engaged and interested in the idea. And I was able to get two, one of two spaces and it was offered to like 30 different candidates. It was a couple weekends, basically like mock boot camp. And uh, I was successful there. And then basically I did that summer of grade 12. And then the next year, first year of college, I was also able to I was blessed with the opportunity to continue on. And so in college, were you doing entrepreneurial things or after you ended the firefight and you went and got some like Wendy's jobs or something? No, that Wendy's was like grade eight, nine and 10 kind of in there. So yeah, basically after the firefighting, it was kind of right onto the entrepreneurship journey after that. Wow. Yeah. So were you, you were selling rocks to your teacher in elementary school yeah what were you selling to your professors at university Anything? yeah well what was funny in university is i was in an entrepreneurship class because i have a, a bachelor of business degree and i was in an entrepreneurship class and the professor at the time while i had i think two businesses running in tandem and still attending full-time studies he gave me a b in his class and yet he's an employee and meanwhile, I look back on it and likely speaking, I was making more as an entrepreneur in his entrepreneurship class while being a part-time student. It kind of highlights the, the system and how backwards it is at times, but it was just a little bit ironic there. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so the business that you started is the, the gutter and cleaning business. You started that in yeah. university? Yeah, yeah. My first year, summer of first year. What was so cool there is you know, when you start young, your margin or your level of success that's required is so low, right? Like for me going into my summer off of college, all I had to do was save up enough money to pay for tuition and a little bit of living expense to get me through the next year of college, right? It's not like I had a car payment, a family, a mortgage or any of that stuff. Uh, so it really afforded me just like almost like this halo effect where you know, you're going to go out and learn a whole bunch of stuff, but you really can't do a lot of harm at that point either, right? No, you, you're not. I mean, it's just you, right? So you you mm -hmm. suffer the repercussions of your decision. And so you go yeah. in. How did you know there was a need for this thing? We, we didn't. Like, we were 18. I was 18 at the time, you know? So it's just like, I don't know, it's a way to pass time. And and even at that, like, what's your What's your opportunity cost? It's not being able to go work for someone for 15 bucks an hour, you know? So like everything kind of points you to that direction of like, let's just try it out. Let's see how it goes. And sure enough, like the learning curve was steep and I, I learned it on throughout the process. I always like to call it my training wheels business because I just learned so much through the process of building that at such a young age. Where'd the idea come from though? So my buddy at the time, he had worked up in a ski town doing the exact same service. So he had like a little bit of shell knowledge and it was literally like, hey, we should try this locally in, in our city that we're we're located in. And that was enough industry research for us. And we were a green light, all systems go. Wow. 
were you able to take in any money that you made for the firefighting and put it into this or this was basically bootstrap type thing? It was a component of both. Yeah. Like literally, I think we borrowed his mom's minivan to get things started. I had a roof rack for the ladder, the, the single ladder, and then just a couple magnet signs on the side. I think we even, his church was supportive and gracious enough to allow us to use their photocopier to print off our first batch of flyers. So yeah, definitely bootstrapped for sure. Wow. So usually when we start business and it sounds like it would be accurate for yours, we're chief everything officer. Yes. Right? We're, we're doing everything. We're doing the work. Right. We're selling the work. We're building the work. We're doing all the stuff. Wearing all the hats. Absolutely. What was the first key hire that you made in order to help you get out of being everything officer? I mean, the first key hire or the first hire of any sort was just one of our roommates at that point. And he was the guy on the ground that could be the technician. And he just took a little bit of the burden off of doing the actual direct thing, right? And then that afforded us a little bit of latitude to focus on the marketing, the sales, hiring other technicians, and and really getting more work into the schedule is what it came down to. Did the first person work out long-term? Not super long-term. I mean, to be fair, it's an industry that has a very high level of of churn and you're having to constantly hire new people as we'd soon progress and soon find out you know that if that is what the industry is then it's up to us to create really good systems to be able to be able to handle that process on a large volume and automate it as much as possible was there something that jumped out for you thinking back on that that anybody who's in an industry where there's a lot of turn janitorial any outside labor that would be helpful for them to hear and know about right now? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I was 15 years in that business. Like that's a long time, decade and a half. And now I'm even a business coach for a group called Conquer. And I coach other people that are going through those same, you know, same, same journeys. And for me, where it comes back to is on the 30,000 foot perspective, a service business has two levers. We need to pull one lever and it's our HR lever. So we're going to post an ad. We're going to get a person interviewed, onboarded, trained, and hopefully reliable. And then the second lever is we're going to pull that and we're going to run some sort of marketing, advertising, quote, the the prospective opportunity, and then eventually have work to put into the schedule. That's really all it is, is it's these two levers. And we don't want to do one crazy pulled back and have too many people and not enough work. And we don't want too much work and not enough people because both those suck. Those are really pinchy points to be in and they're both not very comfortable. Okay. And so it's, so that sounds like low management or workforce or client management. What about like getting really good at getting new people in? Is there any tactic or strategy that you would offer to folks who are trying to deal with that right now? Yeah. So what we call it is basically the hiring funnel, right? So it's tapered the same way as a funnel. And ultimately the idea is you put a whole bunch of leads in the top of prospective people that want to join your operation, right? It could be from Indeed or Facebook, or, you know, it could be people, you know, inside of your circle. And then you basically filter them down. So the next step might be, you know, you have a quick phone interview, right? Basic set of questions. Overall, we're trying to gauge their energy, maybe their little bit of experience that they might be able to bring with them. And we want to keep that pretty, pretty to the point. And then the next step of the funnel 
might be an in-person interview, right? At any point throughout running through the funnel though, we can either say, thanks so much, but no thank you and remove that applicant or the applicant kind of self-selects and they just don't comply with what you're asking for. And by virtue of that, they're going to remove themselves as well as their opportunity to join your operation. I like it. So basically you're straining down until you get to the people that are have the highest likelihood of being successful with you. Yes. Yes. And at that point, they've been evaluated on a host of different parameters that are important to you and, and your organization, right? They, they have your values at heart and then we can train the skill afterwards. So was there ever a point in that business where you got out of the day-to-day operations? So at the end of it, I was basically serving as the general manager. That being said, you know, it sounds maybe a little bit puny in that it was a window cleaning business, but we were playing at a super high level. We were in three different cities and we had up to 15 work vehicles going out. So a total of 30 technicians on the ground. And what was the craziest part about that business is we are up in Canada and it gets cold in the winter. So you can imagine we're not spraying hoses and cleaning people's homes in January and February, right? So what that meant is we would contract dramatically with the seasonality down to literally two technicians in the off season. And then we'd have to hyper expand from two technicians in February to over 30 technicians in May, right? So we had to really take that idea of the hiring funnel to heart and be able to hyper expand and contract with the seasonality. So if you didn't go to work for like a week, would the business continue to run or did you need to be involved? No, it would still run. I think at the end there, it was more so visionary work, strategy, you know, stuff like that. So it was high level GM, but I still had an office manager. And then towards the end, what we actually heavily leveraged was the idea of virtual assistants. So colleagues of ours, but they were located in the Philippines. So they were able to still through a VoIP phone system, as well as our CRM online, they were still able to be kind of our eyes and ears to deal with all the logistics to make the craziness you know, palatable at that point. Got it. What was the most important step for you in getting out of the day-to-day so you could actually be the visionary? I think so many people work on the business, right? But, or work in the business, they don't work on it. And Mm -hmm. you were able to elevate and and work Mm -hmm. on the business. Was it the VAs? Was it the office manager? What was it? Uh, Honestly, I don't think I was a great example of this because it took me 15 years or call it 12 years to get to that point where, the business was Some operating. People never like, get there. Some people never get there. Don't be critical yeah. of yourself. Yeah, for sure. Right. I think some words of advice now, though, is good goal setting and, rev- and review goes a long ways. Right. And dovetailing that into we want to have our calendar, be it Google Calendar or a pen and paper agenda or whatever it is. But we got to live and die by our calendar. Right. So if something's important to you, it goes in the calendar. And if it means a step towards getting off the truck or doing some work that is not the direct labor, it's the indirect labor or the strategy or the visionary, put in the calendar, right? And then if you just follow it, it's kind of like, you know, the 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 brain leads and the, the body will follow. Got it. So it's just being intentional is what it boils down to with the resources. The most important strategic. one being time. Yeah. yeah, strategic and following up with intentionality goes a long ways for sure. Did your company ever have a board or you guys just kept it with you to? No, we, we started bootstrapped and I owned 100% of the shares in the end even, right? So that was the beauty of it is we were very nimble. We we're able to pivot quickly and go in any direction that I so choose. What, did you 
I assume that it was a co-founder situation because you're saying your buddy originally had the idea from work he was doing. Did you buy him out? Yeah, I did. After the first year, he actually transferred colleges. So just by virtue of that, it was kind of like, and of course, what we had there, I think we made $19,000 in gross sales our first year. So it was a matter of divvying up the assets at that point. And it was a, a pretty straightforward transaction to begin with. And then last 14 years, it was all all on me. Did you guys stay in touch? Like, does he know how big it got and so on? And did he build his own similar thing? Yeah, yeah. He went on and kind of did his own thing in, in the, the other city that he moved to. And yeah, he's been doing a whole bunch of other things there. But no, I don't think it ever like tied into him, you know, feeling negative about the situation because it was just so small to begin with. Got it. And you put it on, you put it on a rocket and took it to the moon. So, you know, now we get the exit six, which is, you know, what I call the pot of gold. What was your first exposure to someone selling a business? A few years ago, I had sold that mobile concession business. So I've, I've done it before. And then in, in the inch term too, I've actually purchased ranging from the entire business to just a phone number from a number of different competitors. So I've kind of been always dabbling with it a little bit as we go. And each deal looked and felt very different than the last for sure. But did you, how did you know you could do that? Like, how'd you find out that it was a possibility? I think that just, again, coming from where my roots and, and, where I come from, you know, my head is always in the idea of entrepreneurship, small business, how to grow, how to optimize. And then I think, to, to be fair, a little bit from my schooling, when you get into your fourth year schooling, business college, you know, we're talking about share structures and stuff like that. We're just not necessarily like living it. We're learning about it, but we're not living it. Yeah. Okay. So when you were selling this particular business, the kind of exterior cleaning, window cleaning, Deal. Did you have someone help you with the process? I did. I had a lawyer that helped navigate through the purchase and sale agreement. And then we had an accountant. Outside of that, though, there was no like business broker or anything like that. How'd you pick your attorney and your accountant? Were they people you'd already worked with or? Yeah, we, we also have some investment properties and he's helped with the conveyancing of each of those deals. So he, he's, he's one of those guys, he's kind of a jack of all trades. And he's able to lend his assistance with this one as well. Outstanding. Yeah. How'd you establish valuation without a broker? Yeah, I think I have some idea just being in the industry and then coaching in the industry. I have a good idea of, of kind of what's reasonable and then what, what you can kind of push yourself towards. I think what it came down to, though, is I was very intentional basically from day one that I wanted a fully systemized business, right? So everything documented. We have process and procedure for everything. Even down to on the ground level, when a work van goes out, they have like a military grade load plan of what piece of equipment goes where inside of each work vehicle. So regardless of what work van you're in, it looks exactly the same and it houses the same equipment, right? So that's how we built the the entire business from day one, really, right? So I knew that if I could continue with that idea at heart, that's going to look a little bit more luring and appetizing to a potential investor. So systems and processes is the game. Huge, huge. Yes. And it's such a cool time to be alive because it's never been easier to document a lot of these things, right? There's certain little plugins like Loom or Scribe, where you basically just have to do the thing one more time 
and narrate as you go. And then you have a file that's available for somebody else to follow your, your sequence and your process. And that's such a quick way to remove yourself and then provide a little bit of insulation and distance. Got it. So what are three things that went really well with your exit? So initially, it actually took two separate attempts. And they both combined and spanned over a year long for it to actually from the first time it was uttered to the time it it totally settled and it was done and I was no longer a legal owner anymore. So I think what went really well is we stuck with it even after the first failed attempt. You know, we didn't just throw our hands up and say, you know what, I'm I'm done or I'm going to recommit to the next phase of of going back to the business. I think that was pretty crucial, really, because once you kind of get word that that first deal collapsed, that, like, that can really weigh on your psyche at that point. Yeah. Deals fall apart all the time. So you're saying the first buyer wasn't able to perform on the deal. You had to go No, and it, and it really strung out over a long period of time. Like of that entire calendar year, 12-month cycle that it ultimately took, they were kind of the focus for the first, I would say, eight months. And it just wasn't progressing. And the worst part was the way the purchase and sale agreement was structured is they didn't have any skin in the game. So there wasn't a, a deposit that was left in trust or credited towards the future purchase price. They were kind of just kicking tires at that point still. And we we're eight months in and nothing had progressed further. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. Wow. So how did you terminate that exercise? How did you get rid of that buyer? Yeah, I was obviously pretty animate that I want to get these subjects removed so that you know, this amount, there was an amount, but basically left in trust as a deposit, but similar to buying a home, if you don't remove your subjects, the purchaser gets their money back, right? I was very engaged and and pushing for that to be the case. But beyond that, it was actually them who kind of came to that point. They did one legal extension. And then after that, they, they formally vocalized that they were going to bow out. Uh, So you were pushing for them to move forward and they said, we we're not going to. And so it, were you able to, were you able to get the deposit or do you have to give that back? Nope. That went back to them because they just never removed those subjects, which again, that kind of insult to injury. We were out eight months. We've got some legal expense going back and forth and accounting prep expense. And to make matters even worse, now we're, we're just kind of sitting there and we got, we don't have a dime to show for it even. So do you still write your purchase and sell agreements the same way now or do you change those? I think you still generally, similar to real estate, you still generally have to stick to that basic premise is my understanding of it. That being said, I think when I go into it again, I'm just more motivated to get to that point where there's as little friction and time horizon between the point where some money is actually submitted and credited towards the purchase price so that there's skin in the game, right? Like now that's, that's always a voice in the back of my head. It's like, okay, 
it's all just talk until we get some some money flow moving in one direction or the other. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So emotionally, what did that do to you? Because I mean, you think you're getting a payday and now... Nothing. Oh man, and, and beyond a payday, we're talking like a decade and a half of being in this thing. That's your identity. That's your focus. That's your career. And that's all right. of a sudden someone's like, you know, you thought you were moving on and no, you're not doing that. Like, imagine if somebody did that to a high school teacher, right? And you're like, hey, like you got the gold watch coming. You're going to be retiring next year. How does that feel? Yeah. Like pat on the back. And then they come back in three weeks from then or a month or a couple months, even in my case, and they say, no, that's not happening anymore. And by the way, we don't even have a revised date. You're just not retiring as of now, right? Like that would decimate a person's soul. And yet here we are as business owners, just like having to truck along and put on the brave face and continue on forward. How did you, how'd you work through that? Like, how'd you navigate that? I'm a firm believer that the the universe just has a plan for us and we're just here to navigate, right? So usually too, I've found it to be the case that when I have something that's really challenging or very difficult in hindsight or with an elevated perspective, it actually turns out to be a good thing, right? It, at, at first, you know, it, the perception is it's a negative thing. It's a setback. You know, it, it takes the window to your sales. But in the end, even as was the case here, we renegotiated with the second purchaser at a much higher valuation because we had gone through an, ad an additional fiscal year and we just kind of had that leeway. And we also kind of had a little bit of that swagger too, right? Where it's like, you know what? We already just had this breakup happen and we, we got crumbled and we got through it. So we're good to keep doing this thing if we got to or the new valuation and a bit of a premium, you guys can come in and show your interest. So- you get the wire. Did you get a check or did you get a wire when it finally consummated the deal? It was a check. Yeah. You got the check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're looking at the check. How do you feel? Feeling really good. Felt surreal for sure. Yeah. And it was all just kind of last minute because even as it turned out, the way they had to basically fund their deals, they got it financed through a, an institution, through a bank. And the bank was kind of looking for additional documentation and different reports and stuff, even past when the deal was supposed to have already gone through. So it was one of those things where it's like, hurry up and wait. And it's like, is this going to be the day? And sure enough, you know, by the time we're on the Pacific side of the country, so everything happens on the East Coast. So by the time it gets to like noon or one o'clock, you're thinking, okay, well, we're, we're in it for another day. And it was, it was three or four days of that kind of hurry up and wait. So finally it was like green light and it, Actually appeared to be the case. And then I got to run into the, the attorney's office and, and pick it up there. Was it the largest amount of money that you had in your possession at one point? It was, yes. How did you celebrate? I have two very young children, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And my wife and I, we don't drink a lot of alcohol. So we had a bottle of champagne from one of their births that was still chilling in the fridge for like the last year or whatever. And it was a really nice bottle and I took it into the office. I just celebrated with the team. Really? Yeah. No trophies for you, no Rolex no, or watch, no car, no trip, no nothing. No, you didn't even go to Disney World? Come on. No, we, we did do a, we did a renovation on our garage and put in like a commercial grade gym, which is pretty cool. And then we put a theater in our basement, a theater room. And it's, it's pretty cool, pretty fun, especially with the kids. How long did the feeling of like celebration or achievement or accomplishment last? It's still lasting. 
it was yeah. one of those things where I was just, I was ready to move on, you know, and my heart wasn't engaged in the business and the day-to-day operations anymore. So that created like just a, a very kind of abrupt existence, right? I always attribute it to like a paratrooper that's just jumped out of the plane too many times, you know, and by the time he hits the ground that thousandth time, it's bone on raw, right? There's not a lot of heart involved. There's nothing to absorb things that go wrong, right? So as a result of that, you know, 15 years in and just having my sights on other things that were more exciting and did, you know, have that heart component and that excitement level, I was just so ready to go. Okay. So you're out, you're celebrating, you're glad it's over. Did you find that the check actually scratched the itch for you? Like, I got the money, I can, it's life-changing money, I can do what I want, or you feel like there was something else? Because you mentioned like the identity's gone because you spent so much time. I mean, you built it from nothing, right? A a borrowed minivan and making Mm -hmm. copies in the church basement. Like, it's built into this thing where like, you know exactly where things are going in advance and you got all these employees and stuff. I imagine there had to be some downside for you, like a, a dip, no? It, it's like they say it was bittersweet, kind of, but it was only sweet. <laughs> there, was, really? there was really not a lot of downside. And I think part of that, the reason behind that is because I am an entrepreneur at heart and I always have the next thing happening, right? I don't know that you'd want to just be an entrepreneur and then just sell your entity, your focus, your, your venture, and then just do nothing. Right. Like I think the golf course would get real old really quick. Right. So fortunately, that kind of having that thing to look forward to with additional amounts of capacity to allocate to it and more clarity, that was the excitement for me. That's interesting. We found that most people are chasing the wrong F and we don't really feel like it's their fault. Like the American dream, or I guess the Canadian dream is all about creating mm-hmm. financial freedom. We're programmed for decades to chase it. Right. And then yeah. we get the check and we're like, oh, we're good. But we then realized, well, maybe that's not what we should have been chasing. So like many of my private clients, they come to me asking questions like, what was it all for? Is this really it? And then mm-hmm. what now? You, you yeah. said you had your what now figured out. You're already working on the, the other thing. Yes. But for me, when I'm working with folks, what I find is like they're looking for fulfillment. And yeah. they are struggling when they get to that new place with these six centers of doubt. One of the things that we have found is people experience the founder's exit paradox after selling. And Mm -hmm. it produces similar feelings to existential crisis where you Mm -hmm. begin questioning the meaning and purpose of your life, but it's different because it's triggered by a major accomplishment, exiting a business that you built. No kidding. And so your experience is different, but it seems like you were frustrated. You wanted it to go and you're ready for the next thing. You And now you had real capital to invest in the new thing. You're able to make your home nicer and celebrate with the folks that were on the team. And that I think is amazing. And so what was the next thing? Like, what'd you pivot into on the, on the next adventure? Yeah. And to your point there, Drum, like I fully agree. Like if it were the case that I was just waiting on that check and, and that was it. And then nothingness follows, like that's like dying, (laughs) you know, like, a part of your entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit is just gone then. And for what? For a piece of paper? Like that just, that's not very fulfilling in itself, right? So I could totally see how that would be the case if that was kind of like your final play, you know? So I, I totally agree with you on that. The new things that I'm focused on is I have two businesses. So one is called Hourly IQ. So it does performance pay bonus systems for home service companies. 
which is really cool. It gamifies the job. So if you're a painter, an electrician, a window cleaner, basically it creates a sense of alignment so that your technicians care about the same things you do, right? At the end of the day, as a home service business, we sold the proceeds of our employees' time. So if they went out there and they were more productive and they hustled and they got a lot of work done, then we benefit as the business. And what Hourly IQ does is it creates a bonus system that will basically recognize and reward that tech technician for their hard work. The second one that we're focused on right now is called Ninja VA. It's ninjava.co. And basically it's a virtual assistant recruiting service. So that was basically like my stroke of genius in the last couple of years, especially as this labor market in North America gets tighter and tighter and more awkward to maneuver. What I've found is you can find an incredible caliber over in the Philippines of person that's ready to go, very capable, speaks great English, and they're at a fraction of the price of what you pay locally. And you don't have to pay things like burdens on top of their base wage even, right? So those are kind of the two main focuses in addition to coaching that I do through that group called Conquer that I had mentioned prior. Okay. So, I mean, you're, you went from one company to two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Well, or not. I mean, if you're getting fulfillment and joy from them and it's making a difference in the lives of other people, I, I think you're on the right path for sure. Yeah. And I've heard something in the past that was quite profound. You can be one of three types of managers or maybe a blending, but for the most part, you kind of fill into one camp. It can be a builder, a fixer, or a maintainer, right? And I think that's really quite interesting when I reflect back on my entrepreneurial journey. When things were running perfectly and at a large scale, that was the time that I was actually least interested in what was going on, right? Yeah, it was the boring. building that was exciting, starting from zero and creating something that the universe had never seen before, right? So at heart, I'm a, a builder entrepreneur, I like to think. That's, an, that's really interesting. Yeah, they, they talk about the visionary and the implementer and the EOS system. And so, yeah, I, I can see that. The maintainer... I see them as managers. I don't really see them as entrepreneurs. Maybe. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Or maintain at more of like a linear, predictable level, right? You know, you're looking for a 10% growth over last year, something like that, right? So I'm always curious, who's helping you on the next phase of life? Like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs feel like they can just figure it out on their own and mm -hmm. they don't do coaching or masterminds or any of that stuff. Have you found that to be helpful to get to this point? And are you using it as part of your go forward plan? Yeah, for sure. And and that group that I'm a part of as a coach, you know, it's just, I think any group that you're a part of that that offers that kind of next level perspective and 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 strategy is just so valuable, right? That one is specific to the home service industry and it's called Conquer. And then there's also like 20 other coaches involved, right? So just being a part of that and just even through osmosis is so enriching, right? These people are at such a high level. They're graduated and, and they usually have knowledge and skills and abilities that like are really quite astounding. So I'm very honored to be a coach in, in that area. And I definitely see the value in, in coaching and mentorship. In addition to that, it's podcasts like yours that honestly, throughout my entire entrepreneurship journey, you know, if my vehicle turns on, there's an audiobook or a podcast playing, like by default. And my kids hate it. But that's that's what it is. And again, we live in such an awesome time right now where this stuff's out there. It's available. And it's just a matter of getting yourself to that position of, of being able to to garner it. 
Wow. So did you actually use coaching before you became a coach or you just went straight into coaching? So a couple of the coaches there had podcasts and then they would publish content and different programs that you could subscribe to online. So kind of, I like to consider myself indirectly. I was coached, but not directly through like one of them necessarily. That's pretty cool. So earlier you were, you were being a little tough on yourself and saying, Hey, it took me a really long time in order to get out of the day-to-day business and systematize it. Is that because you've seen other people do it in a shorter time period? That and just that company was all about going out to a customer's home, getting this work done for them at a high level, making them happy. And a large portion of that was physicality, right? Like it's, it's heavy, holding ladders up, getting up on roofs, scooping out debris out of gutters. And I actually did really well in that, right? I used to be a firefighter, so it translated really well. As I look back, though, is actually a little bit of a curse, right? Because just because you're good at something in the world of business doesn't mean you should actually be doing a whole bunch of it, right? There's a good chance you shouldn't be doing any of it, right? If you actually want a big business. So that was kind of my little flag or trip up in the early days is like I kept doing it because I was good at it and it was hard to replace at that same level, right? Fast forward, my perspective now is you don't need everyone to be as good as you are. And if you're wearing all those hats in the beginning days, chances are anyone could be better at one thing. If you just put them in one lane and you're wearing eight hats and in eight different lanes, they're going to be better than you because they're able to have more clarity and more focus, right? I love that. I love that. You know, it's it's really interesting because early on, we say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I can do it better than all these other people. It would take me longer to explain it to them than for me to do it myself. And then as we become more seasoned, we realize the system, the process, those things make our lives so much better if we're able, if we're willing to like submit to them and actually put them in place and let people work in and through. That and I think also something else that I kind of went over with each of my groups a couple of weeks ago is this idea that as a small business owner, when you go through something that's a challenge, it could be something to do with an employee or, you know, not meeting expectations. I think as small business people, we have to have our minds in kind of two different sides of the equation, right? Number one, we got to go deal with the issue at hand, right? The guy kept coming in late to the job every single morning. We had to pull him aside and we had to, you know, see where he's at and evaluate and, and reiterate what our expectations are. The second side of it, though, that I think often gets forgotten is we have to have some sort of systemic approach so that that thing happens less frequently or not at all into the future, right? So in that example, do we have like a really well-published handbook that we review every other week uh, in terms of what our company's expectations are, right? So that we're providing them with the best possibility of success, right? So often we become firefighters of our own inside of our company we go deal with the problem and then we move on to the next thing, right? Lo and behold, in another three weeks from now, that same thing keeps happening, right? Because we did nothing systemically to adjust what the future trajectory looks like. Love it. So the question I love to ask as we wrap up is who else should we have on this show? I know there's some other folks in your world that have had some exits. Usually we we run in packs and sure. Who else is out there that, that we should bring on? Is there one or two people you could think of? Yeah, I would suggest two people who I have a 
huge amount of respect for who were kind of those played those roles of being my indirect mentors. And they might not even even known it at the time. They're kind of industry leaders in our space. So Josh Latimer and Brandon Vaughn would be the two that I recommend highly. And they're going to definitely bring the fire in the value. Well, my hope is that they hear this episode and hear your shout out so that we can get them on and get them to tell the story of their their big exit. So, all right, now that we got that out the way, we got we got the shout outs for what was his Josh and what was the other name? Josh and Brandon, same name as mine. Josh and Brandon, outstanding. So, final question: What's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? I think. The idea of success, like you mentioned there in the North American standard, you know, is is often oversimplified, right? So it's we need to make all this money. We got to be financially secure and it'll just happen in a moment's notice when we're on to the right thing, right? Nothing could be further from the truth, right? In actuality, my indication of it, having lived it, is you not only have to be doing the right thing. You have to be super intentional and strategic about it. And then chances are it takes 10 years to make for an overnight success. So you got to be very tenacious and you got to keep doing that right thing that's well thought out for many years on end. And then if you're lucky, it'll click. So I think it's just a, a tweaking of expectations a little bit. The standard is oversimplified. Man, that's outstanding. All right. So to the listeners. If you've got questions or want some support on your way to your eight-figure exit, we'd love to have a conversation with you. You can email me at Jerome at JeromeMyers.co. Until the next time, your dream should be real. Brandon, thanks again. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.